Welcome to Boom Goddess Radio. This is Jennifer Davis Page in studio with B.B. Peters and Dr. Andrea Gould-Marks. This month, our country has experienced the murders of three African-American citizens at the hands of police officers. We have invited Darrell Bakeman, our friend and supporter, to add her voice to this important topic. This is the first of many conversations we will have on race in America. With an open heart and optimistic attitude, like to have you and Darrell as friends here, us talking about it, the four of us, why don't we just start with assuming all of us are created equal regardless of the hue? You know, now there's the heritage and there's the hue. I mean, all these are factors. Mm -hmm. So there was a lady at the funeral um, behind Al Sharpton. Do you remember her? Mm -hmm. Okay. I saw the first funeral that was done in Minneapolis. I did not uh, see the other two. I didn't see... Which one was Al Sharpton at? I think he all was in Minneapolis. Oh, he all was? Mm -hmm. okay. I didn't. Mm -hmm. I only saw one. Mm -hmm. But I thought his speech was fabulous. Are you talking about the... Well, do you remember whether it was one in Minneapolis that he talked about, get your knee off our necks? Yes. Okay. Well, he did, probably did that with all three of them. But yeah, I thought that was a, I thought that was a, a brilliant one. And, and um, I mean, when people saw this man kill this man, I think this is what has set the world on fire because you know, I'm old enough to have been an adult. We all are old enough to be adults when Martin Luther King was murdered. And I was living in New York City. Were you in New York City at the time? Bibi, where were you in 68? She might have been in college. She was on Long Island. Okay. Uh, well, we were all adults when it happened. And the world didn't go up in flames the way it has now with people all around the world having a voice in what happened. Yes, this is a conflagration. Yeah, this is a, and it was so exciting last night to see London. Well, okay, so what we're commenting on, I guess, is the transmissibility of the rage. I mean, we're open to transmissibility. We're open to contagion. And this is exactly it's just like a shadow of the COVID. I see it as be because we're capitalizing on being able to transmit. Bibi, I, I don't know if you had stepped away when I was talking to Andrea about the assassination of Martin Luther King. Were you in New York at the time in 68, April of 68? Yes, I was. So you, you were an adult, so you remember, you remember right. that night. I remember that night, yes, and, 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 but I also remember the marches, too, yeah. very well, very clearly. And Mayor Lindsay was the mayor of New York at the yeah. time. Yeah, yep. And I was working for Eastern Airlines, and I was at work on 45th and, and Avenue of the Americas when it happened. And he walked the streets of Harlem to kind of, to see if he could calm down the citizens of, of Harlem. Mm -hmm. And I was, this is, this death of um, 
George Floyd is very different for everybody because I think that, of course, when we, we were marching in 68, there was very few white people marching in 68. Right. right. And now, now you've got a whole new group of young people that right. are going to be the leaders of tomorrow that have said, I've had enough. I have had enough. And they're marching. These young white kids are marching. Because this generation needs an ideal. The generation before and maybe before that were sort of rolling around in this like advantaged and whatever place. And I'm talking about the white kids. Mm -hmm. And they really, they, I mean, I had a kid, in, a 16 year old who said to me, I wish I was born in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. And what he was, and he was from East Meadow, you know, Long Island, New York, and he was, you know, he was complaining in, in his own sixteen-year-old way that he didn't have a cause, an ideal. To go after. So this is very age-appropriate for the young people too. I mean, it's age-appropriate for all, but you know, they can they can do it. This is going to be their America, like my mom used to. Well, they better do it because this can't get any worse. Right. Okay, this cannot get any worse. I mean, we've gone through centuries of racism, and somebody's got to stop it. And these young people, what are they, Gen X? They're Gen Z, I think. Gen Z? I mean, the and, yeah. and, and millennials, I guess. Gen All Z. All of them. Look at the 75-year-old man who yeah. could have been any one of our friends. Exactly. Exactly. So they have got to put a stop to this. And I think that it's happening. I think for the first time in my life, I've felt that it's going to happen. Uh, I don't know if you just, uh, if you heard, but the Minneapolis uh, police, they have agreed to disband and reform again, right? So to support what Jen is saying, that it is, ha it is happening. It's For sure happening. it's happening. And you know, did, did you ever read up on chaos theory, how it actually operates? Chaos theory, it's the, sometimes you hear about the butterfly effect. So butterfly, you know, does its wings uh, here, you know, flaps its wings here. And in Siberia, there's a monsoon. That is a very fast example of chaos. So something starts going and then the wind of it, the motion of it, gets something else going and something else going and something else going. And so, like the expression, it's a perfect storm. It's a perfect storm in our favor if what we're looking for is transformation of at least the relationships of the peoples of the earth. But why now? Why 2020? Why now? I mean, this has been going on, as we've said, for centuries. Why is now the time? Okay. That it's well, we're more interconnected than we've ever been before. I know what my, my cousin is doing in Amsterdam. I'll know almost as she's doing it, right? Mm -hmm. We never really had that before. I mean, we've had it for the past, let's say, you know, decade or two. But now we really have it. Because hear me on this. It's the same as the motion of the virus. It is contagious and it is transmitted by our energy. So yes, the children will be out there yelling and screaming and risking their lives. They really will be. And we'll be trying to preserve the wisdom of the elders. We'll be trying to, you know, at least not die in the hospital. But we are, you know, we're in that protection mode. But the energy of it is up to all of us. It's up to each of us.
Well, I think that we should certainly have a conversation with other, other our peers, some of our peers that don't know. Some white women our age really don't know if they're racist. They want to say that they're not, but they still might clinch their bag when a young black man passes them on the street, you know? And that's a form of racism. And so I'd like to have, I'd like to have a conversation with women to see if they really understand this because, you know, you can, you can do a number of things as a white woman, you can do a number of things and think that you're not racist, but then there's some other things that happen and, and you, they don't want to admit it. I'd like to have that hard conversation. You've uh, made a good point, uh, Jen, about a woman walking down the road and a black guy passes her and she clutches her bag. I have to be honest with you. I clutch my bag for whenever a man passes me. Uh, whether, whether he's black or white? Whether he's black or white. I do that. Um, if or I'm young or old. Myself, or, and young or old. So I'm saying, please, uh, people of color, don't think that I'm a racist because I clutch my bag when you pass because I do that for everyone else. Well, you, now you're we're, we're launching the conversations, plural, that we want to have. But, you know, the, the guys who are most being interviewed, Ibrahim and the other guy, Acho, um, are really good spokespersons about what you bring up, BB, about, you know, are you racist? Are you anti-racist? Are you not a racist? Mm -hmm. You know, that distinction. Mm -hmm. And so, Ibrahim Kenya, Kenyo, his name is, he says straight out that you need to demonstrate the anti-racial aspect, not just say I'm not a racist. Right, I'm right. Against it. So yes. that's what the kids, if you will, the, the protesters are beginning to do right now. They're galvanizing this idealism, which is what's been missing. The advantage that the young people today have that the three of us did not have growing up is how many black friends did you, Andrea, you, Bibi, have when you were 12 years old? How many black friends did you have? How many black friends came to your house and had dinner at your mom and dad's table? I always had one in my group. And I was trying to think of that before, that when I was in college, um, I got introduced to a woman who was going in the same program I was, and her mother, Dolores Hunter, that was her mother's name, Dolores Hunter was an educator, high up, black woman. And her daughter, whose name I can't think of, I think it was like Delilah, was my peer in, in school. And prior to that in elementary school, and I was thinking about why that was. My father had to practice in a very... Um, everybody there neighborhood in Queens. It was up. So I was his assistant. I got to meet everybody. I got to learn how to speak Czech. And my parents were both very kind and comfortable. But they were, I mean, we had a black cleaning lady, Essie. Did you have black kids in your, in your elementary school? I did. I, you know, it was in Queens, you know, it was in a, it was in a good school district in Queens, mm -hmm. but in my high school, we definitely did. 
And my sister's high school definitely did, but my sister's high school was bust. I think okay. that's when they first started the busing. Mm-hmm. And so my sister and my brother all had that experience. My brother became a jiving, you know, he would emulate his friends. And he, mm-hmm. he had, like if, if hip hop was, he would have been doing it. Okay. And, uh, what is your personal take on busing? What, what does that, is that a good thing? Is that a thing that is being still practiced? What are your thoughts around that idea? I never, nobody ever liked busing. We didn't have busing when I was in grammar school, all right? My advantage or disadvantage is that my mother had my brother and I in Catholic school. So we were in Catholic school from kindergarten until 12. And in, in grade school, I was always the only black kid in grade school, always, all right? Yeah. And in high school, I was the only, in an all-girls Catholic high school, I was the only black girl for four years. Yeah. Okay? Uh, mm. Very significant. Very, it's very different, okay? This conversation that we have with Darrell, her upbringing, she was raised on the south side of Chicago. So her upbringing is very different from mine. I grew up in a small town, Niagara Falls, New York, in a small town that was, only had 100,000 people and very few black people. Hi everyone, this is Dr. Andrea for Boom Goddess Radio. You know, during this unsettled time, we've been talking to many people eager to share stories about their lived experiences. We're hearing daily about the surfacing of surprising gifts, realizations, and silver linings that had not been obvious in usual day-to-day life. Today, we're inviting you, our listening audience, to write, blog, record, or otherwise communicate your observations, photographs, or other kinds of creativity that are capturing your attention during this period of sheltering at home. Please write to us at info at boomgoddess.com or send us a note on Facebook at boomgoddess. That's our email, info at boomgoddess.com or of course, leave a comment on Facebook at Boom Goddess. We'd love to hear from you because it's your experience that inspires us and powers our future programming. So from all of us to all of you, stay safe, healthy, and open to new awarenesses. We can see you, Darrell. Hi, hi, honey. How are you? I'm wonderful. How about you guys? Happy New Year. I haven't seen you all year. I know. I, I know. wonder why. Do you think it could be because of the virus, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Yes. This is making me very happy. I have to see you all together. <laughs> Knowing how much passion is in the room. Darrell, before uh, we invited you to come in, the three of us had a conversation about our upbringings. And I was asking the ladies whether or not they had any black friends in grammar school and whether those black friends were invited to come to their home after school for lunch. What kind of relationship did they have with black kids in grammar school? 
and in high school. So that's where we are right now. And I was telling them, and as you well know, I went to Catholic school and I was the only black girl in school from kindergarten to 12th grade. So I did not have the same kind of experience you had in, in grammar school or high school. So I wanted uh, Andrea and Bibi to hear your take on grammar school and high school in Chicago. Okay. And well, did you have, I guess the other question is, were there any white kids? Did you have any white friends that you brought home for lunch or that sat around your, everybody sat around your mother and father's dinner table, but did you have any white friends that you felt close enough to in grammar school and high school to bring home? Okay. Um, so let me go back a little. Grammar school, I went to predominantly African-American parochial schools. I went to um, St. Edmund's. It was an Episcopalian parochial school. And uh, so that was all black people. But I lived and my family helped to integrate, and I use that terminology very broadly, uh, because the Chicago neighborhoods are pretty... Um, they're pretty ethnically dominant. You know, you either live in this neighborhood and they're a bunch of people who happen to be Italian, another neighborhood blacks, another neighborhood whites, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But on the south side of Chicago, around the University of Chicago, there are two major neighborhoods. One is High Park and the other, which is where the University of Chicago is located, the other is South Shore. And I grew up in my younger years, my formative years in High Park, and I say that because my father was a realtor and he, he was able to purchase a building that he transformed into a condominium. And we did that and we were the only black family in the neighborhood. And the two friends that I played with were Ziggy and Linda. That was the, they were, and basically really we followed Jew, the Jewish community. They would open up doors that would allow black people to purchase. White people would not do that, but Jewish people did that. And so Ziggy and Linda were my friends that I grew up playing with. And I didn't know anything except they were Ziggy and Linda. And yes, they came upstairs because my family bought the house, that mm -hmm. the apartment building that they were already renting in. And that's kind of how that happened. So that's kind of off to the side. So that's my formative years in, in grammar school. But then in high school, I went to a brand new high school. Uh, my family bought a house. We, the neighborhood um, was a feeder school to two neighborhoods. And white kids went to the school. So it was an integrated high school and it was a public high school. The football team was integrated, the cheerleaders were integrated, and we didn't, we didn't friggin' dip, give a darn. We were friends with everybody. Uh -huh. In fact, I had a group of people that we partied together and had great times together. And one of the guys who was in our group, one of the main leaders was Chuck Skolarski. He ended up being the president of our class. He is, happens to be white. He happens to be Jewish. I don't know if I have to delineate. I'm going to, I'm going to tell the difference because it is a difference. Uh, in the world that I lived in, Jewish people always open the door for black people's people because white people didn't do that. Let's just be clear about that. But Jews did do that. And so um, I don't know who was Jew and who wasn't. I didn't understand that until I got older. I didn't understand that when I was in high school because it didn't make, I didn't think like that. Mm -hmm. I found that out later on in life, you know, but 
uh, Chuck is a, was a buddy, he's still a friend. You know, when I go to Chicago, I still look him up. He's a prominent lawyer. But we grew up partying together and having a great time together. It's just the way I grew up. So it's interesting. I mean, obviously, you know, you use the word formative years, and that, and that is true, right? So that our belief system about people is based on our experiences in formative years. And, um, you know, my, my experience was, um, I, I always had a good, I mean, I always had good experiences growing up. I was, you know, a happy person. My formative years were good and stable and I'm fortunate. Bibi, we haven't heard about your formative years. First of all, you grew up in another country altogether. Right, exactly. Which, uh, being that I was in Poland until 11 and a half years of age, um, I don't remember any black people there. Uh, when we came to the U.S. and in the elementary school, I don't remember black people in my elementary school. What but city? I, for what sure, city in this is in Smithtown, Long Island. Okay. And so that was in early '60s when we arrived. Um, but beginning with junior high and high school and college, there were more and more black people and became friends with. So uh, I think I, my upbringing, once coming to the U.S., really broadened my view and perspective. And so I, and because of that, because I moved to the U.S. and you know, Poles were, Polish people were laughed at at times, like the Italians, like the Irish, right? And um, associated with certain activities. Uh, but I, I don't know, I just wanted to be different. I wanted to be more accepting, more open-minded. Uh, open and certainly going to college was a big deal for me and helping me be broad-minded. For sure. When, when you arrived here, uh, you spoke no English. Is that correct? Right. Right. How did, how did the kids in grammar school treat you? I mean, that's because that's a form of racism, too. Yes. It's not accepting people from other, uh, other countries, yes. uh, other nationalities. How did that affect you? It was a stigma, for sure, because um, I think they made fun of me at times because I didn't understand what they were telling me. I remember particularly the day that John F. Kennedy uh, was killed, and they were trying to describe to me by showing me, uh, by falling down to the ground and telling me what just happened, and I could not understand it. So things like that, when they tried to explain to me and I didn't get it, uh, I was made fun of. And then the thing is I got some extra help from the teacher because uh, every week at least she would sit me by her desk and we would go through flashcards to learn English and some kids thought I was getting extra attention, which I was, but they were envious of it or made fun of it. So it was difficult to acclimate. Um, it was difficult. You did a great job. When did it begin to come, become easier? Uh, I would say in high school. It became easier in high school and certainly in college as well. 
But you have to know that that is not racism, though. You understand it. That's 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 that is definitely discrimination because you have a foreign language. But racism has to do with skin color, and you were accepted because of your skin color, but you might not have been totally accepted because of your voice. So you have to make sure you understand the difference because it's a big difference. Yes. So Jennifer, just so you are corrected, okay? That wasn't racism. That was discrimination well yes. see i've always felt that if i've always felt that racism wasn't about color only that it was you know that when the italians and the jews and the greeks and they all arrived in america and they were discriminated against i always thought that that was a form of racism i, I really did I, so miss mr rel parish here do you hear me yeah i hear you sweetie but that's okay. not racism that's discrimination but it's not racism. Right. Mm. And this is why, why we're having, like this is quartet conversation here, two black women, two white women, one Jewish woman, many went to Catholic schools, Bibi is, is Catholic, but didn't go to Catholic schools, you two went to Catholic schools, I went to public school. Um, but you know what, you still experience discrimination in your life. As a Jew. Yeah, and so, but what's interesting, and the reason I'm bringing that point out, all four of us have experienced discrimination, and I bet all four of us have different hearts because of those experiences, and I'm only bringing that up. That's not the subject for this discussion, but I'm bringing it up because you come from a different playing field. Your heart has already been tugged right or left. Some yes. people have only had a heart that has stayed still. Okay. I love that. I love that comment. And, and I, I say that, that because it is significant. You're going to have a broader understanding yeah. because of your experience. Andrea started. What was your experience? That experience that you bring to the table now was formed way back when. That's what you wanted us to do. But be clear you have more of a possibility of having an open heart because of those experiences. They're significant. So Michael has a friend who's dead now, but he was a veteran. And he said, we're all a veteran of something. And um, like you were saying, Darrell, it's a matter of having your heart broken. And, and rejection does break the heart. I mean, it breaks the heart to this day in, in relationships or you know, friendships or what have you. But when the heart is broken, the heart, I don't mean to make a rhyme, but the heart can open clearly, right? Well, one thing for sure is it does something when the heart gets touched by something here for sure. (laughs) Because when we talk about people who uh, exhibit certain kinds of behaviors, we say they are heartless. Yeah, exactly. None of us are heartless. No, no. But the optimism, before you got here, we were talking a little bit about why is this, why are we feeling that this time is a little more optimistic? Um, And I think that part of what can happen, one of the signs of hope is that if we can get every individual in this world, let's just be hyperbolic, to get in touch with their broken heart, wherever it came from, and take a look at how the heart changes from when it's broken to what it takes to heal, that that could 
open enough people to, well, let's put it this way, that could surface some empathy, which is part of what's necessary mm-hmm. for there to be any change anywhere, even mm-hmm. with ourselves. Before empathy comes, doesn't awareness have to settle in? I, I, you're talking to the person who would say that first. Yes. <laughs> and that's the beauty of this time. And that's the beauty of the media, in my opinion, is that, you know, it's all over. I mean, if you weren't aware, you'd have to be dead by now, I would think. Although I, one of my female clients complains about the man that she was with and the world revolves around him and he doesn't care what's going on in the world. And I guess there's some people like that, right? But I think most people aren't like that. And we I think- We'd like to believe that, wouldn't we? <laughs> yeah, that. For more information, visit our website, boomgoddessradio.com and follow us on Facebook, Boom Goddess. We'd love to hear from you. Your interest powers our programs.